get uh, situated up here, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. The time this morning uh, we'll spend mainly in uh, Ephesians 2, but as we've been doing, uh, the beginning will show the correspondence uh, that I believe is there an allusion to Ezekiel 37. As we uh, continue to study the book of Ephesians, we find ourselves in those first three chapters, in the middle of those first three chapters, where uh, Paul is explicating uh, doctrinal truths, especially as it relates uh, to uh, Christology, uh, the role of Christ, the exalted Christ in uh, his church now how uh, what, what has been won for us in Christ is now uh, given to us through the Spirit in His church. And so we've been working through this epistle under that unifying heading of exalted Christ. And here in chapters 2 and 3, we find that it addresses the earthly witness of the exalted Christ. So follow along as I read for us. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us go to our Lord and ask his help during this time. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that You've given us such a day to gather as this. We thank you for the many providences that have brought us here. We also especially thank you for Christ who has ascended on high and has sent another comforter to us whereby this word of God is illuminated to us. We ask you now that that would happen, that we would come to know your truth in a way that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers also. We thank you, Lord, for this precious gift, and we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I said, we can remind ourselves, it would be appropriate to remind ourselves this morning of our companion text of Ezekiel 37. And I should say that 
um, as the outline, or at least in the notes, you'll see uh, there that it has one through 10 as the ultimate goal. I think uh, as I was uh, looking at uh, the sermon last night and definitely adding to it, we're, we're going to be uh, addressing just verses 1 through 3 this morning. So this will be Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, part 1. And you'll see as we get into it why uh, that became necessary. But as we remind ourselves of our companion text of Ezekiel 37, we see that the Lord is speaking to the exiles in Babylon. He's speaking through Ezekiel the prophet. And he's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem so that when it comes upon Jerusalem, they would know where their hope should lie. That would be a, uh, a devastating blow, as I said last week, to the exiles to hear of the full destruction of Jerusalem. For they were uh, taken out of Jerusalem prior to its destruction. And so for them to then hear of the destruction, especially preeminently of the temple, uh, they would uh, have cause to lose, lose hope. But here in Ezekiel 37, we find, or in, in Ezekiel 37 in the previous chapters, the word of the Lord coming to Ezekiel so that he may instill hope in God's people. The Lord says a few things in the previous chapters of Ezekiel 37. In the previous chapter, or before Ezekiel 37, he says that he's going to provide a shepherd king. The shepherd king will result in a second exodus. We looked at uh, this a little bit more, at least uh, in depth, or at least specifically in Ezekiel last week. We also saw that the Lord would establish a new covenant through this king. In, our, uh, in Ezekiel 37, it's called a covenant of peace. And then he would also provide a land or a kingdom for the king to rule. And finally, uh, he would provide kingdom citizens. If we were to uh, apply the analogy of faith to this and understand also uh, other passages like in Isaiah where it speaks of the Savior Messiah coming, that he would have offspring and these offspring would uh, be many uh, we find that that would be um, consistent here with these kingdom citizens that the Lord would provide. The question is, is from where would the Lord provide these citizens? How would these citizens come about? For uh, Israel is exiled. Many, um, many, I'm sure, have died in the exile, but these, these exiles are here in Babylon. They find themselves cut off from uh, the cultic worship of God in the temple. They find themselves under the judgment of God as they've been taken away and out of the land. And so they find themselves as if they were dead. And so the Lord gives this word to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 on how or where he would have these people come or how he would bring about kingdom citizens and if you uh follow if you're in ezekiel 37 you can follow along as we see in verse 1 that the hand of the lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the lord and set me down in the middle of the valley it was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold 
there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. What an appropriate answer from the prophet of God here to the question of the Lord. Can these bones live? If he would have answered them according to his eyes, the answer is assuredly no. But he answers according to faith, and he says, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover your skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So he was obedient. He said, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, to say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. An explanation given is that uh, the Lord says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So we recognize that what took place here in this prophecy is the Lord gave Ezekiel a vision, a vision of, of, a, of a valley of dry bones. And then the Lord gives Ezekiel a word to speak, to breathe out over these bones. And as he does it, these bones come together, forming a great army. And he gives the explanation of what he's to say to the people that these bones are the house of Israel. For they have said, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. And, and he tells them that he's going to provide blessing to them again. This blessing will be in the form of his spirit within them, giving them new life, resurrecting them from the dead. And this new life will, will lead them to then possess a land they will be kingdom citizens and then as another blessing is that they should know that the lord himself that they would know the lord himself and he says i will do it declares the lord this promise 
of providing kingdom citizens and that they would possess these blessings that we see in other places, especially in Jeremiah 31. We recognize that these blessings are none other than the blessings of the new covenant. And so as we, uh, as we work through Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, we recognize there's correspondence. There's allusion here as Paul uh, utilizes uh, similar themes as I talked about last week. There's an escalation of theme from, from dead bones and as we'll, as we'll see uh, death and we were dead in our trespasses and sins all the way to the culmination that they would know that I am the Lord. There's a, there is a knowing of the Lord as a culmination. To know the Lord is to enjoy the Lord. A blessing given to all of God's people. And so what, we're, what we see is the focus of both of these passages is not necessarily the dead status, the beginning point of this sinful people, but rather the divine work of granting new life to his people. That is God's decisive action of recreation for his people. So we see all these themes coming together here in Ezekiel 37. And then when Paul writes to the Ephesians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we find that whether in the mind of Paul or only in the mind of the divine author, we find this elusive or illusion language where these themes are brought into play and applied in a far greater and expansive way um, than could have been anticipated by uh, the, is, the exiled Israelites. So this morning, we're going to address verses 1 through 3 under this heading, Death and a Prince. Eventually, we'll get to 4 through 7 and address life and a king, and then finally 8 through 10, good works and a new creation. And you can see that there is some interplay there and in contrasting between verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 7. So we're going to bring out this morning this idea of death and a prince. And next week or the next time I uh, am before you, we'll see that contrasted with life and a king. There are uh, a few points I, I want to make under uh, this heading of death and the prince. And that the first one, it comes out of verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The first thing that we can draw as a conclusion here is that death, or is that death as or is an unnatural reality. Death is an unnatural reality. For in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins. It doesn't say, And you were dead in how you, in, in how you cr were created or in how I first created, if we were to be um, completely uh, reductionistic. No, it says that you are dead in trespasses and sins. This being the root cause of death. But it was not always so from the beginning. For scripture tells us that God made man upright. We know that in the garden that, that Adam existed at least for a time. Adam and Eve at least existed for a time in uh, righteous bliss. We don't know uh, the timing of that. But we do know that sin 
was not a part of original creation, which makes it not a part of human nature in the sense of its orig- in the sense of its essential attributes. Why is that important to uh, observe here this morning? Is because when we go to be with the Lord, or He returns, and we exist in glory, we will be fully human, though without sin. Many people uh, uh, use the uh, cliche to, to sin is error, to err, to err is the sin, to forgive is divine, I think. No, to err is human, that's the word, <laughs> to forgive is divine. And there is some truth to that, but not an essential truth to our human nature. Sin can never be mixed in the sense of its essential pr- principles to human nature. Human nature was created sinless. If human, if human nature was also, if sin was an essential aspect of human nature, then we would also have to either say, one, that our Savior was less than human, for he, for he existed without sin, or that he was marred by sin. And so we know those consequences of both of those would be uh, catastrophic to the gospel message and the gospel truth. But we see here in, in Ephesians 1 that this implication of you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked is an expression of this truth, that death is um, an unnatural reality to human nature. Surely it is a part now of our fallen nature. Surely we can never be apart from it in this age. But as an essential aspect of human nature, it is not a part of it. The, the next point we can see in the first part of verse 2 is that there is a depravity of mankind collectively. Socially, there is a depravity of mankind collectively. In the first part of verse 1, it says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world. One commentator observes that in their past sin and transgression, this audience had fallen in lockstep with the ways of the sinful world. The world here is to be understood as a systematic world. The world as it is a collection of humans. That the depravity of mankind is one that happens collectively. That, that, the, that the past of this audience was that they fell in lockstep with the ways of the sinful world. As I said, the use of the world denotes the world system in which particular cultural structures incentivize or nudge us toward particular behaviors. What, I, uh, what we find as we study scripture, especially as we study uh, the scripture that pertains to uh, reality, uh, we find that it, it, it nails everything on the head. Of course, as it is the, the word of God and, the, and truth, we find that it reflects true reality such that this world that incentivizes or nudges us towards particular behaviors or it does so in a way with tremendous influence, it may be unfettered influence, 
to those that are perishing, towards consumerism, whereby we are a people of collection. We like to collect things. We like to have things. None of us is, is above that. We all probably experience that in some way or, or, or another. For again, uh, we still have uh, that old nature clinging to uh, the ankles of us, endeavoring us or encouraging us or, or enticing us to go back to these old ways where we find ourselves in lockstep with the sinful world. Consumerism, we see it in hypersexualization of our culture. We find there's no, uh, there's rarely an image that we see that hasn't been sexualized by this culture, whereby it intends to incentivize or nudge us towards particular behaviors. The perversion of what constitutes a person, something that's a little more modern to, to us, or at least modern to our recognition, whereby we divorce the body and the spirit or the inner man and the outer man and so you could have this disjointed reality that my outer person doesn't match my inner person and so there's a perversion of what constitutes a person who you are is is now divorced from how you've been made and the cultural structures of this world incentivize and nudge us towards particular behaviors and we see that where we find it nudging those that are perishing if it finds no resistance except that which is restrained by the hand of God so in 2a when we see that we're, there's a course of this world that this audience once followed we see that there's a depravity of mankind collectively and as much as this can explain a multitude of what plagues humanity, Paul recognizes that there is more that can be said. There's more, essentially, that plagues humanity. In Ezekiel 37, 23, there the Lord implies that the idol worship of the people was the source of some of their actions. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions this is referencing the covenant of peace that he's going to make with them but the benefit of it is that they shall no longer defile themselves with their idols and their detestable things with implication that they were defiling themselves with their idols there was they were entering into cultic practice of the nations where God had uh, drove out the nations of Canaan, where he had uh, destroyed the gods of the Egyptians in the plagues. The people of Israel had run back to them. They had carved their idols. They had hired their necromancers. They had perverted the worship of God in some areas, claiming that it was a part of the worship of the one true living God. And so the connection here is that when Paul, writing to the Corinthians, explains that this idol worship is connected to demons, is connected to a spiritual reality. 
It's why we're concerned with false religions and adopting their practices. It's, it's why we're, we're concerned with these cultic practices of the age. Because it's, there, it's not just one thing to participate in them. For they're connected to things that go beyond the physical. That go beyond the physical to the spiritual. And Paul references this in the second part of Ephesians 2, verse, chapter 2, verse 2, because he says that they were following the prince of the power of the air. That there's a specific work of demon oppression. Michael Allen makes this observation. He says, here the passage turns from human socialization to pick out the demonic oppression. There is a prince of the power of the air. This one is a spirit that is a being working beyond the bounds of material life. And yet this spirit is now at work in human lives. The idea here, again, is if we're applying it to those that are per perishing, that the, that the prince of the power of the air finds no resistance from those that are following the course of this world. He comes in and out of their lives unknowingly, influencing them and leading them along his destructive path, offering them the world, all the kingdoms of the earth, and I'm sure much less to much less of people and them buying into the lie, being enticed by him into sin. For those who are considered saints and are faithful in Christ Jesus. For Paul, this was a call to the Ephesians to be spiritually alert, that we would not just be on the lookout for the construction of governments or construction of false churches or, or uh, expressions of false worship, that we would also be spiritually alert. Paul will go on in, in greater detail of this at the end of this book in Ephesians chapter 6. But for now, his intention is to call them to be spiritually alert. For there is a prince of the power of the air who is now at work in human lives. The results of this result in social or individual pressures. Social or individual pressures. You can see in some ways we're, we're kind of ratcheting down on this. The, here the focus is on what we might call peer pressure. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. These sons of disobedience are, are ones who there are following the course of the world. They're following the prince of the power of air and that this is all at work in the sons of disobedience, bringing it into this more uh, social or individual pressure, the interpersonal affinity that fallen man has to influence each other and keep one another in line. So you would never uh, step out of line with these Systems are with the prince of the power of the air. 
We see this all too much in our current context. Certainly, we've seen it in a larger scale in what's been dubbed as cancel culture. You step out of line, you're removed from the social elite. You step out of line, maybe even we've seen it, you, you lose your business, your ability to make a living. This is the social or individual pressures such that even in, in areas on the micro level where we have the effects of groupthink and mob mentalities, I, there was a riot just recently in, I think, Minnesota, and somebody interviewed one of the rioters, and they said, Who, what are you rioting about? Who are you rioting for? Certainly there was an uh, uh, officer-involved shooting, but he says, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know his name. I don't know, I don't know what I'm here for. But he went with the mob. He, met with, he went with the group. We, too must be aware of this. We must be aware of the groupthink and the mob mentalities that it feels like everybody's running in the same direction. Even we look at, at those in our greater so-called Christian community that run with them and we think, well, well we got to keep up. If I don't keep up, I, 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 people are going to think I'm, I'm, I'm out of it. I'm not with it. For this is a result of the fall is that there's social or individual pressures. Finally, in verse 3, it's to be understood within each person. We would do a very detriment to ourselves and certainly to our children as parents if we just talked about the sin without the evil world systems. Even Satan, the prince of the power of the air, or, or watch out for groups of people that will lead you astray. If we don't address also the sin within, this depravity that exists within each person. Alan again is helpful. He says, Paul has identified systemic or institutional nudges, demonic assault, and even social peer pressure to sin. But he refuses to locate the highways and byways of a sinful walk wholly outside the sinner. Here he looks within, the passions and desires, the body and the mind. Sin does not come unwillingly, even if it may be prompted by seemingly insurmountable external influence or remarkably tragic situations or purported necessity Sin is prompted by fleshly passion. In whom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is to be understood within each individual person. where sin is prompted by fleshly passion. But lest we then even so confine sin to some sort of compulsion or instinct and uh, some raw feeling, the word of the Lord goes beyond. 
beyond mere compulsion of instinct or reflex, but to the indulging of the desires of the flesh and the mind. Premeditation is often involved in our former death walk. It's often involved in those that are perishing. The premeditation of sin that's conceived in the mind and waits until opportunity is afforded for it to be carried out in our bodies is a reality. James 1 and verse 14, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Brothers and sisters, we must, we must guard our minds. Certainly, according to our old nature, we may, ask, we may act in compulsion and instinct of reflex. But we must guard our minds that we don't premeditate our sins before we commit them. And as much as we can apply these to our own Christian walk and the struggle that we have with sin, Paul is doing something different here. He's not necessarily drawing on, on that. Here in the opening verses of chapter 2, we have a full-orbed view of what the Reformed tradition has identified as the T of Calvinism's five points in the word tulip, total depravity. A helpful definition is to say that sinful depravity is total to, is to say that it has marred every nook and cranny of our existence, both in terms of the cosmos as a whole and in terms of the self in all its facets. To say that sinful depravity is total is to say that it has marred every nook and cranny of our existence, both in terms of the cosmos as a whole and in terms of the self in all its facets. Here we have this clear picture of, of the world's systems, of the prince of the power of the air, of these more tighter-knit groups of social pressures and the sons of disobedience, and then the, our internal compulsion, the internal sin-nature compulsion, to carry out the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. Making sinful man children of wrath. But as I said, Paul's emphasis here is not to explain the world in which we live, or I mean, is not only to explain the world in which we live, but the world in which we've come from. Notice the past tense, and you were dead, and once, in whom we all once lived. This emphasis on past tense for Paul here is to make it clear that the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus have been cut from the same cloth as these children of wrath. For what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon his children? 
when they profess Christ and they've been given a new heart, there's often change. There's positive change. There's a new umption given to them. There's new oughtness, as C.S. Lewis would say. And for those of us that may have been walking with the Lord for some time, the more distance we see between us and these systems of the world and the prince of the power of the air and those that are seeking to pressure us and conform us to the world, we may forget that we were cut from the same cloth. In Ezekiel 37, this new creation from death to life anticipates its final fulfillment in the messianic age. Whereas in Ephesians 2, it is depicted as already been brought about through the redemptive work of Christ. Though we will and we have spoken of the ongoing reality of the struggle with sin, as I've said, the emphasis here is on a past reality. And we can we can and should discuss in what ways sin continues to mar and mangle the lives of Christians in this overlap of the ages. But these immediate verses do not address that particular question. As I said, though we can draw this application that we are to guard our minds, that we are to recognize the systems of the world, we certainly should be spiritually alert to the prince of the power of the air. The particular emphasis of this part of Ephesians chapter 2 is, is that they would draw into a glorious and humble, humbling remembering. He's trying to get them to remember that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. He's trying to get them to remember that they once lived in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That they were once by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why does Paul intend for them to remember these things? Why does he allude or why does the Spirit of God allude to that passage in Ezekiel 37 of a valley of dry bones? Why would that army need to be cognizant that they came from dry bones? I find Thomas Boston's thoughts on this very helpful. He says, remember that in the, day of our, in the day our Lord first took you by the hand, you were no better a condition than others. Remember there was nothing in you to engage him to love you in the day he appeared for your deliverance. Remember you were fitter to be loathed than loved in that day. Remember, you were decked with borrowed feathers. It is his comeliness which is upon you. Remember your faults this day as Pharaoh's butler, who had forgotten Joseph. Mind how you have forgotten and how unkindly you have treated him who remembered you in your low estate. And finally, pity the children of wrath the world that lies in wickedness. Can you be unconcerned for them, you who were once in the same condition? 
And may this well up in us an overflowing admiration of that matchless love which brought us out of the state of wrath. And as with Ezekiel 37, bringing life where none should have been expected. Let us continue to give glory to God this morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise your name that we can call upon you as Father. We thank you for the sending of the Son who assumed full humanity so that full humanity may be redeemed. We thank you, Father and Son, for the Spirit, that his procession is what unites us to Christ, which has quickened us to life, which has caused us to walk not a death walk, but a life walk unto full, consummated, eternal life. We praise your name. May the boasting of our hearts be beaten down by the immense riches of your glorious grace. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, thanks be to God for feeding us out of his word this morning. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, let us bow our heads and confess to our Lord. Father in heaven, we confess with our lips that we, in and of ourselves, are not worthy to be called your children.